It is a joy to see Tim and Rachel back here this morning. Rachel has just got in. They have both been away for a number of months, and they are now back enjoying their family unit. There's no place like home, and they have experienced that in this time away, and it's just a joy to see them back and where they belong and want to be. With this lesson, we're going to begin a short series of several lessons on the subject, the purpose of preaching. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, say, whom do men say that I the son of man am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 13 to 19. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, There be some of them that stand here which shall not see their life come to a close their own death until the kingdom of God be established with power. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he described it as the kingdom that belongs to him. And he told some of those living on that occasion, they would not taste of death. They would still be alive when they saw this church, this kingdom be established with power. Moments before Jesus ascended into heaven, we read these comments. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and saith unto them. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high, Luke 24, 45 to 49. Jesus said, I will build my church. He described it as the kingdom. He told a group of people that they would still be alive when they bore witness to this, the establishment of this church or kingdom with great power. And then moments before he left the earth, he informed those 12 apostles that had been with him for three plus years, I want you to tarry in the city of Jerusalem. And you're going to receive power from on high. And when you receive this power, you are to commence to preach repentance and remission of sins 
in my resurrected name. Acts 1 in verse 8, the Bible says they were to receive this power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Jesus said, I will build my church. He described it as the kingdom. He said it would be established in the lifetime of some of those people living, and that was two millenniums ago. He told those apostles, you remain in Jerusalem, you're going to receive power from on high, and at the reception of it, you are to immediately commence preaching repentance and remission of sins in my name. And then in Acts 1 and verse 8, we are informed that all of this would come to pass when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one place in one accord. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. There came then the Holy Spirit upon them, giving them this miraculous power. He did not enter their minds, enter their bodies in some personal, literal way. There are some things God himself cannot do. God cannot divide his singular being into two or more, much less 12, as these 12 apostles were, and enter their physical bodies with his own being. God cannot do that. God is singular in nature. There's God the Father. He's a singular being or person. There is God the Son. He is a singular being or person. And that's the reason that when Jesus was in a literal body on earth, just one body, he was absent from heaven. He could not remain in heaven, divide himself up, and then with a piece of his deity inhabit a body on earth. He could only inhabit one body at a time. This concept that many brethren believe of the literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit is an absurdity. And I hate to say it like that, but that's what it is. And coming up at Alabama Christian, there were some of my fellow students that believed in that, and I have never believed that for a single moment. And it's because of what I've just stated. That's an impossibility. For literal deity, God, the divine one, to divide up his singular being and then literally inhabit two or more singular, literal, physical beings. That is an impossibility. That is beyond miraculous. If the Holy Spirit was inhabiting just one literal body today. That would be miraculous itself. And this concept of the Holy Spirit literally inhabiting every person who obeys the gospel of Christ, which today would number two or three million. And therefore you've got the Holy Spirit in heaven with God the Father and God the Son. And yet you also have the Holy Spirit having split up his singularity, his singular being coming down to the earth and the Holy Spirit being literally 
in several million bodies. That would be a miracle of a miracle of a miracle. But a miracle that was impossible. And even though some very learned brethren, far more learned than myself, far more, many of them uh, would make my knowledge of the Bible seem uh, minuscule. I know some of these brethren, and I've known some of them in the past who've already left to go home to their reward. But I, I, I cannot understand how uh, anyone could miss this point. Could miss this point. Uh, even if it was possible, then if you've got the literal God, the literal Holy Spirit, in a literal body today, uh, then the age of miracles is yet among us. That's a mighty miracle. Uh, Jesus could only inhabit one literal body on earth. And that was the body he was in. And he was absent from heaven. It was just God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. And when he left that one literal body, and with his spiritual body he went back, to reclaim his place in that heavenly world. And now in heaven you've got God the Father, a singular being. God the Son, a singular being. And God the Holy Spirit, a singular being. In heaven. And what we have left on earth is not literal deity going about giving instruction. But the word of literal deity in this marvelous, wonderful book, the Bible. And therefore, these 12 apostles received not the literal Holy Spirit, but the power that the Holy Spirit gave them to then commence what Jesus said would be done prior to his departure, repentance and remission of sins in the name of the resurrected Christ. And that's what Acts 2 is. There's not a congregation on earth that understands all of this better than this congregation because it is well taught and well studied. Personal study, preaching and teaching from the pulpit by many capable brethren. And then in these classrooms where from the very youngest to the oldest, the Word of God is taught, and these truths just uttered are well known to us all. Acts 2 is not the first gospel sermon as well this congregation knows. It's the first gospel sermon qualified by such phrases as, in the name of the resurrected Christ, as an accomplished fact, under the Great Commission. It's the first gospel sermon in those senses. But Jesus said that this sermon in Acts 2 would commence beginning at Jerusalem. This sermon as an accomplished fact had never been preached before. And again, as well we know, the first gospel sermon is Genesis 3 and verse 15. 
And the second gospel sermon is Genesis 12 and verse 3. And from that point on, we have one unending gospel sermons preached until the last words for four centuries are uttered in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 when another implied gospel sermon is preached by informing us that the man who would come to prepare the way for Christ would come. This new Elijah, this John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for Christ. And as we've often stated, there is one book, if we were going to say, what book in the Old Testament more beautifully sets forth the completed gospel than any other? Then everybody here knows what that book is. It's the book of Leviticus. And it is perfectly outlined in order to set forth the principles of the gospel preached as an accomplished fact on Pentecost of Acts 2. And then one of the great gospel sermons is that sermon in Isaiah 53 that sets forth the crucified Christ. The Old Testament is full of gospel sermons. But every one of them looked forward in anticipation to two things. As the whole Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ and the coming of the church of Christ. And when we open up Matthew 1, we have Christ in the womb, God in the womb of a virgin. And perhaps even in the Lord's Supper this morning, as we thought about the bread representing the body, we thought about that. God in a literal womb in the form of a seed that grew to the point that in nine months a little baby came forth and was placed in a manger. And then 33 plus years later, he went to the cross, the seed of woman, the seed of Abraham, and paid the price for human redemption. And a handful of days later, this great sermon was preached on Pentecost of Acts 2. The Spirit gives them the power to preach perfectly things they did not themselves, as well we know, fully understand. And therefore, after the confusion and the chaos had been eliminated, these men are just drunk, some uttered. And the answers given to solve these dilemmas in the minds of some, we have that first gospel sermon commencing in verse 22. And at the conclusion of the sermon, prior to being interrupted, Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Christ 
And you shall receive the remission of sins. Jesus said a handful of days earlier, prior to his departure, you shall, beginning at Pentecost, commence to preach repentance and remission of sins in my resurrected name. And that's exactly what occurred on this day. The Holy Spirit came just as Jesus prophesied, filled those 12 men with power to preach fluently and perfectly in languages they had never studied. They announced looking backward for the first time for all those previous gospel sermons, look forward in anticipation. There's no anticipation. The anticipation has been fulfilled. There's no looking forward. The looking forward came to be a reality in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. This looks backward to what was in eternity in the mind of God for all of eternity and came to be a reality in the proclamation of this first gospel sermon in the name of the resurrected Christ under the Great Commission as an accomplished fact. And when 3,000 obeyed the gospel, they were added to the church that Jesus said, I will build. In addition to many other truths, Acts chapter 2 sets forth everything we've just known or, or already known, but just refreshed our minds with. But it also sets forth the purpose of preaching. This is one of the most marvelous chapters in all of the Bible. It is unique, of course, in that it sets forth the inauguration of New Testament Christianity. It sets forth the commencement of the church that Jesus said, I will build that was in the mind of God for all of eternity. It sets forth the inauguration of the Christian age. And two millenniums later, here we are still talking about what occurred on Pentecost of Acts 2, that in the mind of God for all of eternity commenced with Genesis 3.15 and was consummated in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ that was announced on this noble day. If there was ever a series of lessons that we need in the church today, it's this series on what is the purpose of preaching? Because in my feeble judgment, more than half of the preachers in the church have no idea what the purpose of preaching really is. And it's obvious that embraces, of course, the entire liberal movement in the church. There's not a liberal move, uh, preacher in all of these liberal churches, some of which are right here next door to us in Montgomery, that have the foggiest idea of what the purpose of preaching is. If they ever had an idea or ever knew the truth about this matter, it's long departed from their minds. And the very fact that they have failed in the purpose of preaching is the reason that over half the church and half the congregations in the church have sold their souls to this evil, obnoxious, horrendous evil that we know as liberalism. Liberalism has destroyed the political arena and we're reaping the consequences of it in this country. But far worse than that, Liberal has, liberalism has ruined many a congregation. And the pulpit 
And the preachers in these pulpits are failing miserably in fulfilling their purpose in gospel preaching. First of all, the purpose of gospel preaching is to make known the scriptures. And how many pulpits in the land today are doing that? Luke uses 25 verses to record Peter's sermon. 25 verses. 12 are direct quotations from the Old Testament. We've pressed that before. Perhaps you have forgotten that point. But that means that one half of this monumental sermon, this first gospel sermon in the name of the resurrected Christ, this sermon that inaugurated New Testament Christianity in the world, this sermon that started what we have enjoyed in this country and the world for two millenniums, people hearing the gospel, obeying the gospel, and being added to the church that started on Pentecost of Acts 2. This sermon that started the church of Christ that Jesus said, I will build and did build is the product, as well we know, of the gospel preached and the gospel obeyed. That's what occurred on Pentecost of Acts 2. They heard the gospel, they believed the gospel, they obeyed the gospel, and the Lord added them to the church. It's also called, as Jesus described it, the kingdom. And in Colossians 1, those people heard the gospel, believed the gospel, obeyed the gospel, and verse 13 says they were translated into the kingdom. Those on Acts 2 were translated, added to the church. Those in Colossians 1 were translated, added to the kingdom. Because the kingdom of Christ and the church of Christ are one and the same. And it's the same gospel and obedience to it that allows a person to be a member of the church of Christ, which is the kingdom of Christ that Jesus said would come to pass in the proclamation of the gospel that commenced in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago. And one half of this sermon, Peter reaches back and quotes verbatim from the Old Testament. This was characteristic of first century preachers. In Acts chapter 7, there's a great gospel sermon. What does Stephen do? He goes back to the Old Testament. And he goes back to where we have gone back thousands of times. He goes back to Genesis 12 and the promise made to Abraham, the background of which is Genesis 3.6 that caused the problem and Genesis 3.15 that introduced the solution. So he starts with Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham and he traces part of the history of the Jewish nation all the way to Solomon's building the temple. And then he quotes from the Old Testament in regard to what was said about that temple, that God cannot dwell in temples made with hands. And therefore refer to that physical temple, which was a great monument, as not being able to contain the omnipotent God introduced to us in Genesis 1-1. And then he makes application. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain before the one, the just one, of whom ye are now the betrayers and murderers. And as well, again, we know, they killed the spokesman. He went back and quoted, and the whole sermon 
was basically a quotation from the Old Testament. What did he do? He made known the scriptures to those people. In Acts 13, Paul came to, and Barnabas came to uh, Antioch of Pisidia. They went to the synagogue. The prophets were read. The law was read. That was characteristic of synagogue worship. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, they said, if you men have any word of exhortation, then we're ready to hear. And Paul stood up, and what did he do? He made known the scriptures. He went back to another well-known starting point of inspired preachers and teachers in the Bible to the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. And then he goes through a litany of Old Testament incidences and uh, statements tracing the history of that great nation all the way up to David. And then uh, he quotes several times some other Old Testament passages. He quotes uh, one time from David. He quotes one time from or twice from David, he quotes one time from John the Baptist, and he quotes one time from Habakkuk. What was he doing? Making known the scriptures. Twice in my life I have heard a preacher make this statement, coming from elders are an elder. You preach too much Bible. You use too much scripture in your preaching. It's impossible for the spiritual mind to get around a comment like that. A group of elders telling their local preacher who fills their pulpit, and then one elder, and I know this elder, he's dead now, telling one of the finest gospel preachers I've ever known, you preach too much Bible. There's no way a congregation like Panama Street could comprehend a statement like that. Here these two brethren were doing one of the purposes of preaching. Really, the purpose that is the undergirding of the rest of them. Making known the scriptures. And they are rebuked by men who are supposed to be looking out for the souls of the flock. But they were far from the kind of shepherds they should have been. They were not spiritual shepherds. They were doing more harm than good. They should never have been installed as elders. And they should never have been retained as elders with an attitude like that. What else is there? Politics? Philosophy? Theology? Funny stories? Personal experiences? Worldly wisdom? That's our problem. That's the problem in the pulpits of today. Instead of making known the scriptures, that's what they're talking about. Quoting from, discussing, referring to, everything but making known the scriptures. No wonder over half of the church is embroiled in a spirit of liberalism. We should not be surprised at what's happening to us. 
No wonder that so many other congregations are just as spiritually weak as they can be. Members who have failed in their own personal study are not getting from the pulpit in the classrooms what they need and therefore are so deficient in Bible knowledge. That's why it's so easy for these slick, talking, oily-tongued men to slip in and just take these people in the palms of their hands and carry them where they want them to be, which is away from the Scriptures so they can do like 2 Peter 2 talks of them, make merchandise of them for their own gain. In Isaiah 8 and verse 20, Isaiah said, To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heat to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away from the faith and be turned unto faith. And in 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, if any man speak, if you're going to speak, if you're going to stand in the pulpit, if you're going to occupy the classroom, if you're going to take it upon yourself to speak to people about spiritual things, let him speak as the oracles of God. The purpose of preaching is to make known the scriptures. If you're present never obeyed the gospel, we encourage you by faith, repent of your sins, confess Christ, be baptized into Christ. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. If you've done that and straight away sin in some way of a public nature, you need the prayers of the church. We'd be happy to aid you while we stand and sing. And pity calleth, turn and listen, stay and hear. Ye that labor and are heavy laden, lean upon your dear Lord's breast. Ye that labor and are heavy the master holy he will teach if you will learn ye that labor and are heavy laden lean upon your dear Lord's breast ye that labor and are heavy Tender 
Labor and are heavy 